0: You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Good morning. Uh, So glad that you've joined us here as we come together to meet with God, and that's what we're here to do today and we're thankful that you are participating in that. Uh, Why don't we pray? Uh, By the way, I can't remember if I even said this, but my name's Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, anyway, uh, I'm going to pray as we dig into God's Word here today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us in this Word that you've recorded through Matthew. And God, as we come, we pray that you would... uh, just shine a light on what you have to say to us in such a way that, Holy Spirit, we wouldn't just receive what you have here, but that we would be transformed by it. So be here with us, Holy Spirit, we pray, to guide this process and to lead in every way. And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, because we've already... Uh, had a lot of sharing and and things that have happened in this service. I'm hopefully going to keep it a little bit shorter than I might otherwise uh, normally on an average week. Uh, And so I'm just going to dive straight into what we're going to be looking at in Matthew's gospel today. And the big idea is that the powerful works of Jesus transform our fear into faith. And so I'd like you just, as we begin to think through this together, I'd like you just to think about the areas in your life where you've experienced fear, or where maybe at present you are experiencing fear. And this is an opportunity for you to bring those things to Jesus and see him transform them into faith, and that's my prayer for you today. So as we get started, we're going to actually look at the context for this great miracle that Jesus performs Then we're going to look at two interactions that he has with two different people, and those are going to set us up to see that miracle that he performs. So let's look at this beginning with that context. What's the context of all that is about to take place? It's verse 18 in Matthew 8. It said, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. So Matthew is introducing these two miracles, one that we're going to look at today, another that we'll look at in a few weeks. Today is uh, the calming of the storm. A few weeks, it's Jesus casting out these demons from two people. And Matthew is setting up those two miracles by mentioning Jesus' decision to leave Capernaum. And he says to go over to the other side, and we're given the impression Uh, that the motivation for Jesus to withdraw from all of these crowds was in order for him to rest. He wanted to rest. And and we're given the impression by the way that these stories are told. uh, From as far as we can tell, Jesus has been going for hours and hours and hours. He's been doing ministry. Uh, All the way back to the beginning of chapter 5, if you can even imagine that. Just busy, busy, busy. He went up a mountain. He preached this long sermon. Then he came down and he healed all of these people. He cast out demons, it said, into the evening. He has got to be absolutely exhausted. And so he's got to get away from these crowds. And so he gives orders to someone we're not really sure who. It's probably the 12 disciples. And he says... Get in that boat, and we're going to head over to the east side of the lake. The lake is otherwise known as the Sea of Galilee. And while these crowds have just seen Jesus preaching with power, and they've just seen him healing with great power, there was nothing that could prepare them for the level of power that he is about to reveal." But first, there are those two interactions, remember, that he has with two different people. And these are going to give meaning to that upcoming miracle. Okay, so think of it that way as we, as we explore these two interactions that he has. The first one is with a scribe. And here's what it said in verse 19. A scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, scribes, who, who were these guys? Scribes were uh, people of the Scriptures. They would have painstakingly toiled over every word and painstakingly toiled over making sure that the Scriptures got passed down. And They were all about the study and interpretation to the point where they would have had some of their own disciples. And so this guy is a guy of uh, the Word of God, very familiar with the Word of God, and we can assume he was probably just blown away by jesus power and authority as he taught in the Sermon on the Mount just before all of this took place. And we can assume that he was present when Jesus uh, acted in healing and working all of these miracles, and he 's got to be thinking to himself, "I, I wonder if this isn 't the Messiah." I wonder if this isn't the king that we've been waiting for. And he comes to Jesus here and he, sa- he calls him teacher. You notice that. And what's interesting is that in Matthew's gospel, the title teacher, when someone comes up to Jesus and calls him teacher, it's actually a sign that they're an outsider. They're not inside of the kingdom of God when, they're, uh, when Matthew puts that word in their mouth. But he says, teacher, to Jesus, and then he says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Now, what does he mean by whatever, wherever? Um, Well, it seems by Jesus' response that this was only a commitment to join him on this trip across the lake rather than a full surrendering of his life as a disciple. And so he's saying to Jesus, basically, Jesus, if you're getting in a boat, I'm getting in the boat. I'm, I'm going with you. And then Jesus turns to him and he says, you sure about that? (laughs) You sure you want to do that? Check out his response, verse 20. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus gives himself the title. This is the first time this happens in Matthew's Gospel. This title, Son of Man, which kind of sounds strange to us, but if you want to think of it as Jewish shorthand for, I'm the Messiah. I am the king that you have been waiting for. I am the one um, among, uh, uh, in whom all of your hopes are tied up. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, son of man. And so he says to this scribe, he turns to him, he says, I am the son of man. I am the Messiah. And by the way, I'm also homeless. <laughs> so uh, are you sure... Oh scribe, are you sure that you want to be with me? Are you sure that you want to come and learn under me? Are you sure that you want to come and become like me? And live like me? And Jesus challenges this scribe to think bigger than that boat trip. Bigger than that immediate moment. And Jesus is causing this guy to truly consider... Have you counted the cost of following me? And friends, he's asking us the same question. Have you counted the cost of following Jesus? Are you ready to follow the nomadic Messiah wherever he may go? Even if it's into the unknown. You see, discipleship we've said before is it's being with Jesus so we can become like Jesus and live like Jesus. Discipleship is not just a matter of getting something from him. It's also becoming like him and doing what he does. And so doing what he does includes The fact that Jesus gave up his worldly comfort and security in order to give himself in the service of others. And he's asking us, are we ready? Are we ready to do the same? But there's one more interaction that Jesus is going to have, similar, that's going to set up that big miracle that we're going to get to. And this other interaction happened in verses 21 And 22, it said, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, plenty of people put off following Jesus in order to pursue, I don't know, uh, worldly pleasures or sins. But this disciple doesn't want to go do something evil. He actually wants to do something good. He wants to go and bury his father. Now, who knows the exact context? Who knows whether his father is actually dead at this point or not? But in the ancient world, this was one of the most important things that a child could do. One Bible scholar said a duty uh, that, that burying your, your father or your mother would be a duty far more sacred than simply saying goodbye It wasn't just like what we would think of in terms of a burial. It was far more sacred than saying goodbye. There was no obligation more spiritually significant for a child in the ancient world. So this guy wants to do something good, which makes Jesus' words all the more shocking when he says, let the dead bury their own dead. Now we have to know that Jesus oftentimes speaks in hyperbole. He loves doing it, and and sometimes it could be pretty funny. In this case, not as funny. (laughs) But it is still hyperbolic, and we have to read it and understand it that way. What is he actually saying? He's not saying, oh, just let them rot. Christians don't bury dead people. (laughs) That's not what he's saying. I'm guessing there's probably some weird sect of Christianity that's like, well, we can't bury dead people, I guess. Jesus said it right here. Um, That's not what he's saying. The point isn't. That in order to follow Jesus, we have to stop doing ordinary, good things and and fulfilling our responsibilities. No, the question is the same as it was with the scribe. Have you counted the cost? Or have you said something to Jesus, something to the effect of, sure, I'll I'll follow you. I mean, give me eternal life. That sounds great. I get to go to heaven? Sure, deal. Deal but uh, I'll begin taking my discipleship seriously next year, Jesus. Or, and then you kind of look at your calendar and you're like, "Um, actually, you know, next year's looking pretty busy. Jesus, I'll start taking my discipleship seriously the year after that. Yeah, I really got to work on this career. Or, Jesus, I got to get this traveling in. Or, my kids are really busy with after-school activities and sports. I I, got to get all this done right now. Or Jesus, you know, I'll begin taking discipleship seriously at a later time. Right now, I gotta really get my savings account balance up, or I've gotta go and get married first. H- hang on, Jesus. I'll eventually get around to following you. Don't worry about it. I mean, uh, BT Dubs, thanks for that eternal life thing, Jesus. I'll see you later. Is that how you've approached it? Have you have you actually put down? The pursuits that are preventing you from following Jesus seriously. Even pursuits that aren't bad in and of themselves. If not, then you you probably don't see Jesus for who he truly is. You probably don't understand who you are putting off. And that is, I think, why Matthew puts this story next In the gospel, it's to show us how crazy we would be to hesitate to leave everything to follow Jesus. And here's where it begins in verse 23. It said, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. Jesus was asleep, he was tired. Can you imagine doing all that he had done in that one day? I mean, this is a bonkers. Just to go back, we talked about it earlier, but remember, he's been going, as far as we can tell, for hours and hours and hours. He's been healing people, preaching, casting out demons, and he's tired. He's tired. And so what we have to pay attention to when we see things like this is that Jesus is just as human as you and I are. He's just as human as we are. He was just as prone to physical weakness as you and I are. You know, sometimes we can make the mistake of only seeing Jesus as God. And Jesus is God. And Jesus is all-powerful. But he's not only God. And when we make this mistake, we kind of see Jesus as like superhuman Jesus or superhero Jesus. He's got a big S on his shirt or... I don't know if it's a big J. Is that what Jesus is uh, thinking? Is that, is that a J? Okay, there we go. Um, and we can make this mistake of, of thinking that Jesus is just superhero Jesus. And superhero Jesus is great because, I mean, he can come and he can rescue us. And to be sure, Jesus is God. And he does have incredible power and majesty. And we should stand in awe of who he is. But he's not just God. And superhero Jesus is completely unrelatable. He's nothing like us. Because we aren't superheroes. Some of you guys are like, speak for yourself, man. I'm a superhero. (laughs) Just because you go LARPing with your friends on the weekends does not make you a superhero, okay? And, And superhero Jesus is completely unrelatable to us. And yet the Bible teaches us that Jesus was fully human just like you and me fully human he got hungry like you get hungry he got thirsty like like we get thirsty i'm thinking of the moms this week i'm thinking about you know what it's like to have especially little kids who also get hungry and thirsty do your kids get hungry and thirsty jesus also grew weary just like we do, do you grow weary? Again, thinking of the moms, perhaps you get weary when your kids are hungry and thirsty all the time. <laughs> it just gets, it wears you down, right? The Bible also says Jesus was tempted in every way as we are. Do you experience temptation? Of course you do. We all do. And yet the Bible says that though he experienced temptation to its full measure, Unlike us, he never sinned. Now, how did Jesus do that? Did he do that by you know being Clark Kent? One of my friends used to say, "Jesus is God in a bod," uh, or that he's God with—that's supposed to be funny. Uh, <laughs> G- Jesus is God in a bod, uh, or that he's God with skin on. And there's there's a level of truth to that, but we can kind of minimize the humanity of Jesus when we see it like that. Like he's, you know, Clark Kent, like he's just kind of shrouded in this human skin, but he's really just God. He just kind of looks like one of us. That's not true. Jesus didn't live this life uh, full of all of our experiences yet without sin, just as God. No. No. The Bible says that Jesus laid aside his rights as God, that he emptied himself of things like his unlimited power and his unlimited knowledge. And without ceasing to be God, he lived a fully human life. How did Jesus do that? He did it in the same way that Christian, you and I can, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the prototypical human being empowered by God's Holy Spirit, but he's still a human. And so he fell asleep because he was stinking tired, just like we get stinking tired. And of course, it appears to be the worst timing ever because things are getting crazy out there on the water. This huge storm has come, which I guess is common on the Sea of Galilee. And now everyone is about to get capsized, this boat's about to overturn, and it appears to be a really, really bad time for Jesus to take a nap, doesn't it? And at the same time, his sleeping is also a sign of his total peace and trust in God. And here's what I mean. I don't know about you, but I, I often, or maybe not often, but from time to time, I, I have trouble sleeping. And uh, there can be a lot of contributing factors for difficult sleep, right? Um, physical pain, maybe you drank too many cups of coffee that day or too late in the day, right? Or maybe you ate something for dinner that's kind of stirring around in your stomach and keeping you awake. Or maybe it's just the familiarity of that place, if you're like me, kind of that first night in a new uh, bed, you, you have trouble sleeping, So I'm not trying to oversimplify the causes of our difficulty in sleep, but I can speak from my own experience that oftentimes at the root of my troubled sleep is a lack of trust in God. That that I'm up and I'm anxious and, and I'm mulling over something I'm trying to control, but I can't. And yet here, Jesus is at peace He's at total peace. But what's everyone else doing? They're they're freaking out, right? Verse 25, did you see that? And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Have you ever been in a scary situation where your life was in danger? Or perhaps maybe not where your physical life was in danger, but there's something that you are trying to avoid and you can't. Something that you can kind of see on the horizon, maybe it hasn't even happened yet, but you have that fear of what's about to happen. Or maybe you're going through a season of suffering. We can respond very similar to these disciples experiencing that fear the waves are beating against the boat and you think Jesus where are you at are you asleep are you kidding me some of you know that our church was born out of the ashes of Mars Hill Church and that I was also a pastor at Mars Hill Church and that Mars Hill Church was a church with a lot of problems and you know, all churches have problems, but Mars Hill Church was a very big church, and so those problems were very big, and they caused a lot more harm than a smaller church's problems might cause. And as a pastor, I worked for many years to try and help fix some of those problems, uh, but at the same time, I have to acknowledge that as a pastor, I also contributed to some of them. And this was, in the aftermath of Mars Hill, this was a lot of what was going on with me was trying to reckon with all of that and reaching out to certain people who I knew that I had just not pastored well or I had had done what a lot of the Mars Hill culture was about, was just this uh, misuse of power over people, reached out to people, reconciled with them. But I also had to acknowledge and recognize The ways in which being a part of Mars Hill had harmed me and the trauma that that had caused me. And I I eventually went to a counselor, uh, actually a couple counselors, (laughs) for some help. And one of the counselors that I met with asked me to do this exercise. And so in this exercise, I sat down in a chair and there was another chair across from me. Some of you guys who are like not into counseling and therapy and stuff, you're going to be like, oh, this is totally dorky. That's Okay. But what I want you to hear is uh, how God worked in this situation, okay? And so I'm sitting in this chair, and the idea of this exercise was I'm supposed to imagine Jesus sitting in the chair across from me. And I'm, and I'm to tell him the things that happened to me. Just kind of dump the dump truck on Jesus, in a sense. And, and the ways that that has affected me to this day. And then I'm supposed to change seats and go over to the other chair and imagine Jesus talking to me. And what might he say? And there's some prayer, some time just kind of wrestling with the Holy Spirit and his presence in that moment. And I I almost heard him audibly speak to me as though, you know, this is Jesus talking to me saying I was there. I was there. And what I realized in that moment is Jesus wasn't sleeping. He wasn't, you know, he hadn't fallen asleep on the job. (laughs) Jesus hadn't failed. Jesus was with me through all of that suffering. He was there. He was suffering with me in the middle of all of it. And while I can't explain the fact that he allowed me to experience those things, I think there's mystery there. What I do think the Christian faith teaches us is that Jesus is present with us in the storm. And he's not just merely asleep on the job. Jesus is actively at work. Have you ever experienced something like that? where you recognize Jesus' presence in the middle of a trial. Or perhaps before you experience his presence, you think, Jesus, where are you at? Why are you leading me into this trial? Why are you allowing me to experience this fear that's crippling me, God? Not realizing that the fear itself is what is on trial. This is something that hit me this week as I was thinking about this story. Think about this for a minute. When we go through a time of fear, when we go through a trial, what is Jesus doing? What is he up to? He's trying to uproot the things that are in our hearts and in our lives that need to get expelled. And one of those things is fear. And what's so amazing is that he uses these trials... To actually put our fear on trial. That is what Jesus is up to. And fear, friends, it exposes the reality that we like to keep tucked away at all times. We like to kind of brush it under the rug, this reality that we are small, we are weak, and we are helpless. And we kind of brush it under the rug of self-reliance and and self-esteem and pride. And yet it doesn't change the fact that it's true. We are small. We are weak. We are helpless. And so rather than deny it or try to suppress it or try to ignore it, we've got to just embrace it and embrace the fact that we need a Savior. That's what these guys did They shouted out to him, save us, Lord. And you know what? They called on the right person. Jesus, his very name means Savior. Did you know that? Jesus means literally God saves. And so these guys called on the right person because they're secure in the hands of their Savior. And when we cry out to Jesus, we are secure in the hands of, of our Savior, when we encounter trials, and when we experience fear, we've got to remember that there is nothing that we have to lose, in an ultimate sense, in those times other than what we won't take with us into eternity, those things that Jesus needs to expel from our hearts, those things that we need him to come and redeem, and so trials are actually an opportunity. They're an opportunity to experience a release from fear and experience the relief of faith. It's yet another chance to be with Jesus so we can become like him and live like him. And so these disciples, I can kind of imagine them coming to him and like shaking him awake. Save us, Lord, we're dying here. And what happens? Verse 26. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? You of little faith? And then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Last week we said that the measure of our faith does not control Jesus' power. And we're talking about healing, and we said the measure of our faith when we're praying for healing, it doesn't control Jesus' power. Jesus' healing power is not dependent on us and how much faith we have. And that same truth applies here. Did you notice that? Jesus rebukes the disciples for their little itty-bitty teeny-tiny faith. And then what does he do? He actually answers their prayer. He acts despite their tiny faith. And they said, what sort of a man is this in verse 27? And the answer is, it's not just a man. It's not just a man. This is the one who said at the beginning, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. This is the creator of the wind and the waves. That is why they obey his voice. And friend, that is why you should follow Jesus. That is why we should follow Jesus. Yes, he is fully man, and yes, we can relate to him. But he is also fully God. He is the God man, and yeah, he had to rest, But he's also the one who the winds and the sea obey, which is why he's worth giving up whatever it takes in order to follow him. And friends, if the wind and the sea obey him, we should too. They obey him because he made them, and he wisely uh, gave them purpose, and he wisely ordered creation to function rightly when they are functioning, functioning rightly. And likewise, he made us, and he wisely gives us purpose, and he gave humanity purpose in the beginning, but then he renewed that purpose when he came to make disciples, when he came For people to be with him, to become like him, so we can live like him. And so today I just want you to ask the question, have you gotten in the boat with Jesus? Are you in the boat with Jesus? Have you followed him even into the unknown? Have you left behind the security and the cares of this world in favor of the trials and troubles that accompany Jesus? You might say, well, why in the world would I do that? Why would I give up security and and comfort for the sake of trials and troubles? And the answer is because when you get in the boat with Jesus, you, yes, you sign up for trials and troubles, but you also unite yourself to the one who has authority over those trials and troubles. You bind yourself to the one who can actually keep you through them all, You bind yourself to the one who can actually provide for you a deeper security than comfort. Deeper security than a bank account or an investment or a home ever could. The powerful works of Jesus transform our fear into faith. That's the big idea today. And I'd like you to, as you meet with your community groups, use these as some questions to spark the conversation Have you gotten in the boat with Jesus? Where have you experienced turbulence? And where do you still have fear that you need Jesus to transform into faith? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for sending Jesus to be this Savior that we so desperately need in our weakness and our helplessness as we face uh, life in a broken world that includes trials and troubles and suffering and fear, we thank you, Jesus, that with you we don't need to fear. As we place our faith in you, you, you liberate us, you free us, you transform us. And so as we go about our response to you right now and we go about our week apart from uh, this worship service. Would you fill us with that faith that destroys fear? And we pray it in Jesus in your name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.